Hello, hello, hello. This is in a proper British accent because our next guest is from Britain, from England. Hello, Governor. Yeah. And, uh, boy, your accent uh, kind of sucks there, Morgan, but uh, good try. Oh, yeah, I can do me cocking, but knock me up against Wall Street Moth with a putty knife, sir. So, no, hey, we are we are uh, in homage to our next guest that's going to be coming up. We'll be telling you about that in a minute. But in the meantime, welcome back. My name is Morgan Wright, one of the co-hosts of the fabulous, internationally renowned, and uh, globally downloaded Game of Crimes podcast here literally with my partner in crime. Hey, everyone, it's Murph. Welcome back. But you can call him Murph. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Murph the Smurf. All right. Hey, guys, thank you for joining us. Real quick housekeeping. We'll get that out of the way. Uh, just head on over to Apple and Spotify. They've got those things, one to five stars. If you think we're worth five, we'd love to hear from you. If you don't think we're worth five, at least justify it. Tell us, drop us a comment uh, and let us know what you think. We, we always try to improve. A lot of our changes we've made have been because of you. So we want to thank you guys for doing that. Spotify and Apple, head on over, hit those stars. Also, head on over to our website gameofcrimespodcast.com. We put everything about the show up there. We've got our book list, which has become one of our most popular things. In fact, last week, Brian Server, he had a book. Our guest this week, Julie Mackey, has got a book. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So head on over, uh, merch, our, uh, any events that we have going on, our mailing list. Also follow us on that thing they call social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But I'm telling you, where you got to be is Patreon, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. That's patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. That's where all the fun is happening outside of our free stuff. The, the podcast is free. The Patreon is our premium content. But we go through stuff, Murph. I mean, like 911 calls. We go through Case of the Month. We go through the Narcometer. We review things. Uh, we've got our special bonus stuff added, which was you and JP kicked off with the real DEA Narcos on the real DEA Narcos. Then we had Chris Feistel and Dave Mitchell come on talking about the Cali edition. So between those two things, we've got um, 16, 28 hours of the most in-depth conversations you will ever hear about going after the biggest names in drugs at that time, Pablo Escobar and the Cali cartel. I mean, Murph, we're, I mean, you don't, you even forgot most of this stuff until we dived into it. <laughs> it's, it's been amazing. And I'll tell you the, the, the 12 hours of interviews that you did with Javier and I, that's the most in-depth interview we've ever done anywhere all these years later. So you'll hear, you'll hear a lot of details there that you, you didn't hear in the uh, series Narcos that you haven't heard in any of the other interviews or documentaries we've done. So, Come on over and check us out. We, you know, in addition to that, we rate a, a, a law enforcement movie every month to tell you what we think about it. And some of them are really funny. Uh, and we got one session with, well, you can't make this shit up, you know, to talk about stupid criminals out there. And our Q&A. We have, you know, our listeners writing questions. We have not turned down a single question yet that our listeners have sent in. So if you got a question for us, send it in. Get on Patreon and hear what the answer is. Ask us anything. Uh, well, I mean, yep. <laughs> We'll answer the question, or the question might be, yeah, I don't think I want to answer this question, but we'll still read your question. Yeah. But we, <laughs> and your name. And your name. So be proud of it. Be, you know, be proud of it. So, but guys, that's that's what we do over at patreon.com slash game of crimes. Also, let's really quickly tell you about the, the show here. Uh, this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously, but you know we're not going to take ourselves serious. We're talking about serious topics, but we're going to have some fun while we do it. Yeah, and one of the ways we have fun is uh, we have uh, we have our fan group that anybody can go to, but if you want to know what's really going on, 
if you want to hear behind the scenes, as Keith Morrison would say, as we talked about in our episode last week, Keith Morrison, you got to go to Game of Crimes fans. Just go to Facebook, type in Game of Crimes fans, run by our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato. Answer a couple questions. Just get close. If you're deemed worthy, you'll be admitted to the inner sanctum where a lot of the fun stuff, the fun stories. And in fact, a lot of times the things we talk about on the podcast for funny stories come from our friends, our players over at the Game of Crimes fan page. Right, Murph? Absolutely. Absolutely. We have a blast, those guys, and they post some of the funniest stuff on there. <laughs> you'll, you'll enjoy it. They'll give you a little chuckle. Little chuckle. Well, this one won't give you a chuckle. Let me get, we just do case of the week. Like I said, we were doing small town police blotter. We're changing things up now. Now we have case of the week. Okay. And Murph, hmm? you know, I got to tell you, when I first read this, I said, of all the people you would charge with first degree murder, it you d- wouldn't think that it would be people who's n- not a cop, but people whose primary job is to save lives. Okay, are two we talking EMS, about firemen? No, but close. Two EMS workers charged with first degree murder in Illinois. Oh, geez. So two EMS workers are facing first degree murder charges after a patient died in their care. And this says last month. Uh, I think this was uh, in December of 2022. Uh, the Sangamon, Sangamon County t- State's Attorney charged Peggy Finley and Peter Cadigan for the death of an Illinois man. Yeah, on December 18th, 2022, the EMS workers were responding to a call for assistance with a patient suffering from hallucinations due to alcohol withdrawal. Well, guys, we've seen those. Those are called the DTs, the delirium tremens. You know, we've seen those things. Um, Finley can be heard yelling at the man who identified himself as Earl Moore to sit up and quit acting stupid. In the newly released body cam video, I mean, who's got body cam? I think it was the cops. There, there were cops out at the scene. Video also shows Finley telling Moore 35, we ain't carrying you, and I am seriously not in the mood for this dumb shit, using an explicative in his remark, before eventually strapping the patient to a stretcher in a prone position. So he's strapped him face down. Mm. Um, according to press release, officers attempted to provide more care after the EMS workers acted indifferently to the patient's condition. Um, of course... When they asked about Lifestar Ambulance, they said, no comment. Body cam footage additionally shows police officers attempting to help more out of the house and onto the stretcher. The officers took steps to assist him, even waiting on the scene to ensure medical personnel loaded the patient into the ambulance. They're not trained to equip to provide the necessary medical treatment or transport patients in this type of situation. So they they call EMS. And what happened? Um, uh, He died. They strapped him down. He couldn't move if he wanted to. And he's face down. They did not show any compassion whatsoever. According to court documents, they're being held on $1 million bonds. So he died in the face-down prone position. Wow. You know what? So, you know, and, and this is not indicative of EMS personnel at all. This is a true exception to everything that I've ever seen from the first responders that come out. But these two people are clearly in the wrong profession. You know, EMS workers get in the, into that profession the same reason firefighters and police officers do, to help people. These two people are just jackasses, apparently, that think they're more important than everybody else. Was the guy belligerent? Yeah, but he's an alcoholic. You know, and he's, he's going, going through withdrawals. But exactly. you, always, you never deal with people on their best days. You deal with people on their worst days. Right. So if you got thin skin, <laughs> don't come into the occupation of being a first responder on anything. Well, and look, I've defended, you know, we, we, you know, we protect uh, EMS and paramedics. Why? Because someday they're maybe saving our ass, you mm-hmm. know, and you want you always want to have good relationships with them. So, you know what? It's one of those things is that nobody's immune from this. But, you know, and the other thing, though, too, Murph, that killed me about this story, not, you know, no pun intended, was just the 
callous, the callous indifference to this guy. We don't care. I don't have time for this shit. To your point, then what are you doing in this job? This is exactly, you You have time for this shit because you were dispatched. This is what you're supposed to do. Exactly. You're getting paid to have time to put up with that shit. <laughs> it's crazy, boy. Boy, can you imagine the number of complaints you and I would have got if we would have said, I'm sorry, I didn't got time for this shit. I'm not investigating this and I'm out of here. There's a lot of times I felt like that, but I didn't say it. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of times I said it in my head. Hopefully I, my inner monologue, uh, you know, overrode my outer monologue. But. <laughs> yeah. Hey, well, speaking of inner monologue, our next guest has no inner monologue, as you're about to hear. She was, this was so fun. We actually had the author, her co-author with the book, reach out to us and uh, said, hey, I think she'd be a great guest. And of course, with everybody, what do we do, Murph? We vet people. We just don't take their words for it, right? We have to look into things. We have to say, you know, is that really the case? Well, after taking a look at the book and doing a little bit of research, I was going, yeah, we got to have her on. Uh, she uh, and a person named Robert Murphy, no relation that we know of to Murph, Julie well, Mackey, knows? wrote they a probably book. probably are. We just don't know it. But it's called To Hunt a Killer. It is a 31-year-old cold case. And when you, uh, I'm telling you, Murph, so Julie Mackey basically led the charge on this. They, they did the initial investigation, uh, couldn't develop any suspects. But as technology got better, as forensics got better, she kept working on this case. She worked on this case, I think she said, for seven years, seven or eight years. I'd, I, I'd hate to be a criminal and committed a crime and have her on my case. She reminds me of Bill Sarukas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, dude, last person in the world you want is Bill Sarukas and Julie Mackey on your case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, I'm trying to teach her how to say her last name correctly. It's McKay. That's how we t- ugly Americans would say it. But Julie's fantastic, and you're going to love her story, her personal story, how she got to the point where she started investigating this. And she's going to tell us about her rookie years as a, uh, a a patrol officer walking the streets. No, woman police constable. There you go. A woman police constable. And and the how she was required to dress. But you know what? It didn't slow her down. She's chasing bad guys. <laughs> but you got to listen to the story about crossing the fence because it's hilarious. <laughs> yep. But uh, fantastic. You know, the, I mean, just this is one of those where you're going to listen to somebody that is facing hardships that um, – actually considered suicide. I don't want to give too much away here, but I mean, she had a challenge of a lifetime, not only working as a full-time homicide investigator and cold case investigator, but also trying being a single mom, trying to raise three children. I mean, this, this lady had it going on. I have immense respect for her. I think you will too, after the show's over. It's a good one. Absolutely. And, and I'm telling you, it just, we have some good fun. She's got a great sense of humor and she can give as good as she can take. So, um, I, yeah, I just think she this called is, us old. She called you old. <laughs> she was looking at you and she said, not me. No, nah, I got all the hair, dude. Got all the hair. <laughs> it just so, looks old. Look, got old hair. <laughs> <laughs> but you, I'm, I'm telling you, this is another one from across the pond. Um, she retired out of, uh, the, uh, I'm sorry, uh, just spaced out the name, but it was, um, she started off at, uh, Bristol and Avon and Somerset and Gloucester. I think she said Gloucester. Yeah. Um, and, but her career is fascinating. The challenges she went through 
And if you're not impressed by this, you guys are listening to the wrong podcast because we only bring impressive people up there. And again, she wrote, there's a, there's a podcast out there basically called Catching Melanie's Killer. And then she wrote a book uh, with Robert Murphy called To Hunt a Killer and fascinating reading. So Murph, there's only one way we're going to find out about the inside details of the 31-year investigation to find the killer of Melanie Road, codenamed Operation Rhodium. And that is, I have to ask you the question. Are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, as Bond would say, the game of crimes? I tell you what, everybody, you're going to love this one. This this one of the better ones here. So get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Let's get cracking with Julie. Welcome back again. This is going to be another exciting episode. Why? Because I'm on it uh, and Murph's on it. And then our guest of honor is on it. Now, you're going to detect just a little bit of an accent. Um, we had to get a translator for Murph because he doesn't understand proper English. So That's right. Y'all think to, I have an accent? Wait till you, wait till you hear, hear this our guest So here. it's not Julie McKay. Some of you may read the book as we're going to talk about. It. It's Julie McKay. Julie, Julie, Julie. Welcome. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to be here with you both. Great to have you on here. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah. Hey, and real quickly, what was the rank you retired at? I was a detective superintendent. Detective, DS, a detective. So we're going to go through the rank structure because even as smart as I think I am sometimes, which is really not much, but it's like still trying to figure out the rank structure between like NYPD and uh, the police forces. We're going to have some fun. But Julie, first of all, we're going to talk about this too, folks. She has got a book out. She co-wrote with an author called Robert Murphy. It's called To Hunt a Killer. It's about the episode. So we're going to talk about today. And also there's a podcast. What's, what's the title of the podcast, Julie? Uh, the podcast is Catching Melanie's Killer. Catching Melanie's Killer. So we're going to talk about Melanie today. Melanie is the subject of the case. But as we do with everybody, and what, what guys, it'll be on our book page. Don't worry about it. We'll put it in the show notes. But as we do with everybody, think of ours, Cosa Nostra. How did you get started? Were you in a pub one night, lost a debt, lost a bet, you know, playing, as I guess you guys call it drafts, not darts, but drafts, right? You missed and uh, you had to sign up for something. What happened here? So actually mine's a bit different to that. When I was really young, seven, I was sent to live with a family because my parents were moving around a lot, me and my sister. The mom, incidentally, was American and we used to have American pancakes every Sunday morning with maple uh, syrup and talking. bacon. There you go. Now you're talking. <laughs> uh, bacon. Like, yeah, <laughs> day without bacon's bacon. like no day at all. Yeah, got to have bacon. <laughs> and uh, So <clears throat> when we were living there, I was sent to bed at 7 o'clock every night. And in the room I was in, there was a lot of books. And on the bookshelf there was Sherlock Holmes. And so from the age of seven, I started reading Sherlock Holmes. And I just decided I want to be a detective. So wow. that's how it started. That's a cool story. <laughs> it's crazy. I have it? got the printed version of all his stories now that it's kind of out of copyright protection. They printed it. I've got the, the entire collection of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And one interesting fact about him, he actually used some of he later on in life went and actually solved a few cases using a lot of the techniques that he had come up with. It was such an interesting story to read about. Yeah, great author. I just, I love it. I love everything to do with Sherlock Holmes as well. So it started there. And then a little bit later on in life, I was running a pub with my mum. So the pub does feature, you guys will be pleased to know. And, uh, and when you say your mum, your your real mother or the one that you were living with? Yeah, no, my real mum. Okay. Yeah. 
And uh, so we were doing that. Our local Bobby used to come in at lunch times and have a pint, as they were allowed to do there and couldn't possibly do now. Probably in America, but not in England. No. And um, and I just decided. Why you work for DEA? I don't know DEA, Steve. I think you might have had a drink in the drunk afternoon. every afternoon. That's what he's saying. That's a joke, everybody. That's a joke. That's a joke. <laughs> you need to. I should think of some of those jobs. <laughs> Occasionally, <laughs> well, you have to blend in if you're working undercover. So, there's of course, you do. Yeah, I'm all for that. <laughs> so, I decided working in the pub. The hours were too long, um, and I wanted a job that was less hard work. So, uh, coupled with my desire to be a detective, that's why I joined the police. Oh uh, well, <laughs> yeah, I wanted to work less. Yeah, okay. Were you drinking when you thought of this? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what was the name of the pub you worked in? The Fox and Badger. The Fox and Bad. That's a good, goodish British name, right? Yeah, it's a proper old-fashioned English pub. Yeah, a little old stone pub. I'll tell you, there is a uh, pub in London called the Pheasant Inn. Coming back from flying overseas one time, a little uh, vacation place called Pakistan. But um, I was coming back, and we stayed. They had a food handler. Anyway, long story short, they were on strike. Some of the food handlers, so we got delayed a couple of days. So we went walking around. We found this pub called the Pheasant Inn, like from the 16th century. You could tell why, because the ceilings were like six and a half feet tall, maybe seven feet tall. And but the best pub food I had first time I had real authentic bangers and mash. Oh yeah, cool. You 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 guys would love my cottage actually, because I'm in a new bit at the moment. But uh, my cottage is 1680. So I've got really low ceilings and all those beams. Yeah. It looks, and I can see you. Uh, I can see in the screen, it looks like the ceiling's right on top of your door. Yeah. It, yeah. It's on top of the door frame. Yeah. Wow. My, my daughter and son-in-law, they have, we actually have some old houses here. They have a house that was built originally in 1783. Oh, cool. Yeah. It's Washington County in Maryland, but at George Washington, they did, got the original survey and everything. But yeah, those are beautiful houses, but man, thick walls, you know, and just stonework. So how old were you in the pub when you decided you wanted to join the police? I joined at 20. Is that the, did you have to be 20, 21? Was there a certain uh, age? It could be. No, 18 and, 18 and a half, I think. You could go in up. But yeah, I was 20. So. And where were you located at? Where was your, where, what uh, town, what part of England were you in? So I started off, so the pub actually, funnily enough, was just outside Bath, which as we know, we'll feature a little bit later on. So I knew Bath quite well. But uh, I started off my policing in Bristol. So walking the beat on the streets of Bristol. Well, let's talk about applying for that too, because always fascinated by uh, the process for going through. So, when you tell us about the application process, what was it like? What did you have to do? What's your testing like? You know, things like that. So it's different then to now, isn't it? And uh, I suspect that in British policing, they wish now that they had some of those old values back, because uh, there's been some bad publicity here. But uh, you had to do your application form, as you know. Uh, they went through vetting. And then if you got into the interview stage, you did a uh, different written exam, so maths and English. Uh, you had to do a presentation. So I did my presentation as to why pubs should stay open all day and all night and not close in the afternoon, because in those days they were just about to change legislation. What was the purpose of doing a presentation? Oh, it's about are you confident speaking? How do you come across? Can you engage with the public? Can you deal with questions? All that stuff that you're going to need, isn't it, when you're out? 
mm-hmm. in policing. If you can't talk to people, then you know, don't bother applying, isn't it, really? Now, did you pick the pub open because the guys and the ladies or whatever on your board visited your pub or liked to drink? Uh, yeah, they didn't. So, I mean, they liked to drink, those policemen, but they didn't come to our pub. You did a medical. They had to see if you uh, – you had to be – they had right height restrictions in those days. And girls used to have to be five foot four, and I think guys were five foot ten outside London. And uh, I wasn't quite tall enough. And they're like saying, stretch, miss, stretch. <laughs> so they had to go and ask. And, like, they didn't have many. Didn't have poof many up, girls. Poof up your hair. Yeah, did you poof yes, your hair? Yes, I did. Yeah, I just pulled it up on top of my head. <laughs> the reason we're saying that is we had an episode with Michelle Linhart, who was the first woman, actual DEA agent, became the administrator of the DEA, and she started off uh, as a Baltimore city cop. Yeah. And the only way she made it, she was like five foot three and a half. Yeah. The only way she made it, she poofed her hair so she would be five foot four. And you Absolutely. stand very straight. Stand yeah. very straight. And they were desperate for girls because you just, you didn't have girls in policing, you know, it was like tokenism, wasn't it? So they're like, oh yeah, let her come in see what happens. So yeah, that's how I got in. How long was it a process from the time you applied till the time you were offered the job? Oh, not, that, not so long. Uh, I don't know, three months, four months, not very long. Wow, that's pretty quick. Yeah. yeah. But you didn't tell us about how your presentation went. So how was that received? What, what Did they grill you? Did they say that's daft? You know, you can't do that or what? Yeah. So what's the challenges for policing if the pubs are open all day? And it's mixed, isn't it? Because if you close in the middle of the afternoon or at a certain time at night, everyone starts drinking quickly, get pissed really quickly, and then they get more difficult, don't they? Whereas if you keep it going throughout the day, it spreads the pain. So those those were the things that they were asking. But I thought it was a good idea, personally. Our customers are much happier staying drinking all afternoon than having to <laughs> well, knock You make more points. money that way. <laughs> uh, yes and no. Sometimes they just go slower, don't they? So they drink the same amount but over a long period of time. Yeah, and take up did, space. Did, did the testers agree with your position? They did. They thought it was great. There they liked go. the fact that I thought about it. So, yeah, <laughs> cool. no, it was good. So you get on. So what's it like? How? Where do you go? So you get, you get on Bristol. Tell us a little bit about Bristol. Where is it located? How big's the town? So Bristol's uh, the main city in the southwest of England. So if you look at London and go 100 miles west – which is probably nothing for the States, but basically it's the other side of the country in England because we're so small. Uh, it's down there in the uh, southwestern corner. Um, just trying to think. It's it's the largest city in the southwest. So it's probably it got significantly larger than, uh, than Bath. Oh, yeah. Bath's small. Bath's beautiful. Bath is a city because it has an abbey. So in England, some places are classed as cities just because of the type of church they have. So if they have an abbey or a cathedral, they become a city. But they might be really small, like a really small town or village. Hmm. So so is uh, was Bristol then near Kent County? Kent, no, the other side of the country. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's Somerset. Oh, that's right. Kent County is where the channel goes through. That's right, yeah, yeah. So completely the other end. So what made you pick Bristol? Just because that was they had openings or you wanted to move away? Yeah, so I just applied for Avon and Somerset Police because I was living in Somerset and just outside Bath at the time. So that was my local force. But to be honest with you, I'd never been to Bristol because I'd spent all my life, my early life, I lived up in the in the east of the country in London and North Hertfordshire. So, yeah, it was a bit of a shock. Uh 
A to go there. Went there for my interview. And then the next time I went to Bristol was the day I started work there. And uh, yeah, it took some getting used to finding your way around. So how does that work? Are you applying then for a particular force or are you just applying to be a police officer and then you find out where the opportunities are? No, you apply for a force. So you choose the force area that you want to apply for. And once you get into that force, they could put you anywhere in that force area. Wow. So how big of a territory was Bristol then? You said it was a couple million people? Yeah, I guess so. Um, And the area I had, so it's broken down into small little districts. So maybe a quarter of a million people where I was. And how many how many people were on the police force when you started? So in those days, you had loads. On a shift, we had 30 of us. So the inspector, two sergeants, and then 26, 27 constables. Today, they probably have six or eight on a shift. Really? No kidding. Yeah. For the same population? Yeah. Why? Budgets? Uh, budgets, yep. That's Relying it. on technology, uh, more squads, so people get siphoned out. So you might have the same number of officers in the pot that you start with, but yeah, a lot of it is um, different commitments to different things, different Specializations. programs. Yeah. Wow. Hey, tell us about, let, let's talk about now about the rank structure, because you said you started off as a woman police constable, right? So they yeah. had... So they had police constables, PCs, and WPCs. So was there a difference, though? Was it just the name, or was there a difference in the... Because the thing I think about, if you think about American law enforcement, you think about the days of Dragnet, and they had the policewoman in the skirt and stuff. They weren't. They, they didn't go out and ride in cars, but they did administrative stuff, right? But how did they... Was there a distinction, or was it just only to identify you as a woman? So I was just going to say to you there, the thing that uh, definitely distinguished us was we weren't allowed to wear trousers when I joined. <laughs> so you did wear a skirt. Uh, you weren't allowed to go out on your own. You always had to go out double crewed with a bloke at night. In the daytime you were, but at night you weren't allowed out on your own. You mean you had- it, not personally, but for work related, right? In other words, you, you could go out on your own when you're off duty, but when or did they have restrictions? No, work-related. I'm just laughing because they do have a lot of restrictions on your personal life, and they did then about where you could live, so they'd visit where you lived to make sure it was suitable, uh, and who you lived with. If you weren't married in those days, you had to uh, write a report asking if you could live in sin because they frowned upon it. So, yeah, it was quite antiquated. Wow. Um, But, yeah. So, yeah, so I always worked. um, So in the daytime and lates, I could go out on my own at work, but in the evenings, night nights, then that was it. You had to go out with a bloke to start with. What year did you start? 1988. 88. And when did you retire? Uh, 2020. Okay. Just trying to get a time frame here in my mind. Math was one of the tough things for Murph. He's still counting once the 88. <laughs> I have to take my socks off to count that. No, no, don't, Murph. I've seen the, your toe fungus. Do not do that. <laughs> Seawater. Smell it from here, the other side of the pond. You know. <laughs> All right, Julie. <laughs> come on, Julie. Come on, yeah. And you know, my my grandmother immigrated from Essex, so you know, we got I got that British connection there. Yeah, we know about those Essex girls. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that. You have to tell me more offline. <laughs> yes, obviously. <laughs> so, hey, but let's talk about the rank structure because like i said that's why we're heading so how is is rank pretty much standard across all the police forces in uh, england 
Yeah, so it's pretty much the same everywhere. The only one that goes slightly out of sync as it gets higher up is the Met, um, so Metropolitan Police in London. But the rest of us, we all start the same. Everybody, certainly then, started at the bottom and you work your way up. And uh, and now, again, it's a bit different, but also in those days, you had to start walking the beat. There was no other way to get into policing other than you went, you joined in uniform uh, and you went out and walked the beat for two years before you were even allowed to drive a car. How much how much influence did Sir Robert Peel have? Did they talk to you about Sir Robert Peel and community policing? Was that a big emphasis? So when I joined, it was a huge emphasis um, because we were, you know, the communities that I policed in the 80s in Bristol, I knew them all. So I knew all the estates, I knew all the back alleys, I knew all the laneways, I knew all the families that were either criminal families because you're arresting them all the time or vulnerable because they came on your radar for that. So I think community policing then was huge. Then it diminished as time does because resources go away. Then they realised it was really important. So it came back round in the late 90s and then it goes away again. It's like waves, isn't it? It's like the sea coming in and out. And what they need to do is just keep it, keep it there where it belongs and uh, everybody will be much happier and much more efficient. So if, there may be some folks wondering, because in I think it was 1839, Sir Robert Peel was the father of the London Met, and he came out with this 10 Peelian Principles of Policing. And because I, I always quote one all the time in terms of working together, I said the police are the public and the public are the oh, police. police. Yeah. The police being the only members of society paid to give two time and attention to duties which are otherwise incumbent upon everybody. And because I was a member of the Community Policing Committee for the International Association of Chiefs of Police, and that that was a big thing because look, you can't do it yourself. You can't go out there. The reason I'm the reason I'm saying this is because it's going to factor later into the investigation in terms of help from the community, why it's important to be out there. But um, as as you did this, what were some of the what were what was your bread and butter uh, in terms of crimes or offenses that you were working when you were walking the beat, walking the lonely streets of Bristol with a bloke in the evening, Governor? In the evening, governor. Yeah. So, uh, so everybody's different, aren't they? And you guys will know this in policing, wherever you are. I would describe myself as a natural thief taker. So I could go out of the station and every day I would come across a burglar, a robber, a thief, something like that. It's just one of those things. And I loved it. I think that's where I got my love of investigation from. So my bread and butter was shoplifters and thieves like that, burglars and robbers. Now, is this is this catching them in the act or after the act or both? Both. Yeah. Yeah, both. Yeah, a lot in the act. A lot of burglars in those days caught them in the act. And how, what, how much latter, Go ahead, Steve, sorry. I was going to say, what kind of weaponry did you carry back then? None. <laughs> we, even, even then, this will make you guys laugh. So, of course, traditionally, the guys, you know, we've got in England the old wooden truncheon. Um, that they had but because we were girls we weren't allowed a proper full-size truncheon we only had like a mini one because it had to fit in our handbag yeah there you are see <laughs> a rosewood truncheon may have been uh may have been uh relieved somebody uh in the london med of this exactly. for, our, for our american listeners we're talking about an old-fashioned wooden billy club a billy club is that what you call it <laughs> yeah yep. we just called it a stick get your stick out yeah. <laughs> well that works too <laughs> And I will, I'll tell you what's interesting about this. It actually has a, a symbol on it, and it has, I mean, it's got some imprints on it to show 
uh, where it came from. It's I think this one, he told me it came from about 1946. I'm looking at it right here. It says something about, um, hard to see, like uh, M and C, I think it says, or N and C. But it's but it's got it. I'll, I'll show you. I'll take a picture of it later. But it's got a real nice symbol on it. But yeah, when you said when that. you said it had imprints, I thought you meant it had like skull indents in it. Well, that's what I was thinking. Or chips out of the wood, often <laughs> yeah. for smashing glass and things like that. There are some dents in here that look suspiciously familiar. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And then, plus, I relieved, like I said, I relieved uh, somebody. I've got the uh, the old Bobby helmet back there. Yeah, it's yeah. too small to wear, so I, I just have to, you know, you're, I just let it sit there. Julie, you're just talking about thieves. You may be looking at one right there when he comes. Yeah, to I know. I, mean, mm-hmm. I didn't take anything. I was given something. How mm-hmm. I got it, he I have no it. idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Appropriated it is what you did, wasn't it? I know. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your uniform too. At that time too, like you said, no weaponry. But what did they? So handcuffs, obviously. Uh, but you said you only had a smaller club, right? Yeah. So handcuffs were the old metal ones, which are chain link. Uh, and the reason I just mentioned that is because nowadays, you'll know, we everyone's got rigid handcuffs, something they're much stronger. And you can double lock them. But those old metal link ones, we were out one day. I was out with a guy on nights. And there was a bloke trying to jump off a motorway bridge, like they do. So he's on the wrong side. So we mess about with him for a little while. And eventually we managed to drag him back, put him in handcuffs just to look after himself, you know, because we're going to take him to the hospital. So I'm in the back of the car because I still wasn't allowed to drive at that time. So, you know, still young in the service. And as he sat in the back of the car fighting, he literally snapped the handcuffs. And I was like, okay, this is not going very well now, is it? This is interesting. (laughs) Stuck with a man mounted. He's trying to, like, break out of the car. Uh, And I was in the back seat with him, trying to sit on top of him. But, you know, I was like nine stone ringing wet. It just wasn't going to work, was it? I had to get some backup. Yeah. So handcuffs. Yeah, we had handcuffs, not very good ones to start well, with. Well, that's when you pull out your stick. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, the stick didn't even bother because, you know, it was a waste of time, wasn't it, the girls' one? <laughs> yeah. It was more effective if you put a brick in your handbag and then you could just clot them around the head with it. <laughs> hey, now that's experience talking right there. I like it. Uh, so, yeah, basically our uniform was uh, you wore shirts and ties, so um, white shirts and little bow ties for the girls, uh, NATO jumper and skirt and just shoes. That was it. It was bloody cold in winter. And what about your hat? Yeah, I had a, yeah, girls, WPCs, we had our special hats. In fact, they were softer to start with, um, and eventually they became a harder bowler hat type. Uh, but yeah, because I don't think girls are expected to be out on the streets fighting and getting involved in stuff. So the whole uniform just didn't reflect, you know, proper modern policing. It wasn't really functional for a lot of the work you had to do, right? It wasn't. Do you know, another day I was out, I was chasing a burglar. In a skirt. In, in, <laughs> in no toed shoes, yeah. yeah. I don't, he'd gone over a chain link fence <clears throat> into a cemetery. So I was climbing up over the chain link fence. And as I went to jump down the other side, my skirt got caught on oh. the top. Of the- <laughs> 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 so I was suspended there quite literally. <laughs> <laughs> had the moon over the UK that day, huh? Oh, my God. You can imagine the blokes coming to laugh at that one. Thank you. And Mark got a similar story. His skirt got caught one time, too, you know, jumping over a chain link fence. Yeah. Yeah, I, was trying to get, I was trying to get away from, the, from a trooper in Kansas. Trooper, yeah. That's pretty easy to do. Well, could have been a Scottish, Scottish officer wearing a kilt. A kilt, yeah. Could have been. Now, did, you have, did you have kilts? 
no, I don't have kilts. I we mean, the men did any. Okay. Not in policing. Oh, come no. on. That's good. That would have been fun. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. So what, what was the result? So you're hanging, did you, were you able to extricate yourself or did you require assistance? No, I had to get some assistance to get me down. <laughs> Isn't that embarrassing? <laughs> How does that look? I'm sorry. I mean, are you like upside down, sideways, or are you hanging up, you know, right up? It's you literally, know? imagine you've just jumped over a fence and you've like got an item, if you, for you guys, maybe a jacket caught on it. But for me, it was just my skirt. Yeah. So I was just like stuck there. Are your feet on the ground though? <laughs> no. she's not not even five foot four (laughs) there's got to be a picture of that somewhere (laughs) luckily it was pre-mobile phones so yeah you didn't get that (laughs) you know if that had happened today there would have been a and then and then an investigation yeah yeah. (laughs) (laughs) you're gonna be famous now because it's out on game of crowds yeah (laughs) (laughs) well as long as they can laugh about it like i can then it's fine isn't it yeah these are the lengths we go to in policing and the humiliation that we put ourselves through just to get a burglar now, what kind of a rash of shit did you get from your uh, fellow uh, police constables for being caught up like that with your skirt? Oh, well, you can imagine it was bloody days and days of entertainment for them. <laughs> what kind of nicknames did you get That's from what that? I was about to ask, Murph, what kind of a nickname did you get? I don't know. I didn't have a nickname. Really? No. Uh, we would come up with something. We're going to have to come up yeah, with something. Okay. Okay. So let's continue on the rank structure. So you start off as a constable. What's the, uh, what is the next step? And, and the other thing too, it's kind of interesting too, because even though there's uniformed and investigations, it's kind of amalgamated. It's kind of, you know, combined in terms of, I think sometimes authority, right? So the rank structure is the same, whether you're a detective or in uniform. So that doesn't change. Uh, but if you're a detective, then everything is detective constable or detective sergeant. So that's how it goes like that. But yeah, so you start as constable and then you can move up to sergeant. So to get to sergeant, you have to take exams and then sit aboard. So I took my exams really young in service. You could do them in your first two years, but I did it straight after. Failed the first time, one of the papers, probably traffic. I was always shit at traffic. And then um, took it again the following year. So passed my exams with three years service. So I was destined for great things, apparently, when I joined. <laughs> <laughs> we're going we're gonna to talk about the challenging uh, progression through the ranks here. Yeah. So after detective sergeant or after sergeant, what yeah. comes next? So next is inspector. Uh, then there's chief inspector, uh, superintendent. Got your pencil gang? Oh, yeah. Chief Superintendent, <laughs> and then it's Assistant Chief Constable, Deputy Chief Constable, and then the Chief Chief Constable. So, and, and like you say, whether it's uniform or investigations, the rank is the same. It would be just Deputy Super or Detective Superintendent, or Detective yeah. Chief Superintendent. Yeah. So you mentioned the you mentioned the designator DS for for uh, Detective Superintendent. Is that right? Yeah. Detective Sergeant, right? Yeah. So DS is Detective Sergeant. And okay. uh, so we use supped for superintendent, de-supped. So, yeah. Morgan yeah, just made that. Confuse it. Morgan made that rank, except the DS dub for dipshit. <laughs> <laughs> Which still outranks a special agent. <laughs> a special agent. Well, you could have been the senior DS there, you know? <laughs> 
Hey, I was gonna. We 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 interviewed a guy yesterday. Uh, these these come out out of order, but uh, Brian Server. But I just reminded me, Burf, as I'm doing downloading his uh, soundtrack and stuff. His initials are BS. I should have just asked. Him <laughs> yeah, and he's a we prosecutor should. and an agent. Anyway, but back, we back have to some you, fun with uh, Julie Mackay. How did? Why is it pronounced Mackay? It sounds like a Scottish name. Like it should be McKay. Yeah, it is a Scottish name. So it's um, my ex-husband's name. He's very lucky that I've deemed suitable to keep it, but there we are. Um, <laughs> what was your maiden actually, name? Actually, my maiden name was Diamond. So that's what I started Julie off Julie Diamond. It sounds Julie like Diamond. a stage name for a singer or something. <laughs> or something else, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, something else. But is there something here you want to tell us on this podcast? I don't it? think so. I think there'll be enough <laughs> nonsense coming out about me and my life without worrying about adding to it. <laughs> Notice, Murph, that was not a denial. That was just a delaying <laughs> tactic. Okay. All right. Yeah. Julie. Julie Diamond. Okay. That's, that's, that, that could be a good name. Okay. We'll have to come up with a nickname for that. So um, but so you're on the street for the first two years. You, you don't pass the test the first time, but you pass the second time. You talk about in your book, there's also this thing they call fast track. How do they determine if you're going to be fast tracked or not? Yeah. So they, um, they, they talk about uh, whether you've got, uh, if they think you've got high potential and if they think you've got high potential, then they'll put you on the fast track scheme or high potential development scheme. How do they determine that? Uh, well, they just see that you're brilliant, I guess, and say, why don't you go on up there and have a go? That's, they just that's my take on it. <laughs> is there a formal process, though? <laughs> so there is. So you get recommended for it by your supervisors. And to be fair, most people that were on it or that did it were generally academics. So people who I would describe as very clever, intellectually clever, usually been to university. Uh, of course, I didn't take that pathway because I discovered that it was far too much fun to be had at the age of 16. So I was out partying, traveling, working, generally having fun. The university didn't feature. And, and in fact, in those days as well, we used to have to pay to go to university. I mean, I'm not saying they don't now, but they do it with loans now. And I know that my mum couldn't afford for me to go to university, so I wasn't going to go anyway, um, which was fine. They didn't bother me. So but, when yeah. you were young, did you have any interaction with the police during your partying days? Absolutely not. I was far too clever to be caught by them. <laughs> <laughs> again, again, not a denial. She's not saying I didn't do anything. I just wasn't caught. How do you think I got to be a good cop? <laughs> because you told people, look, you're doing what I did, except I, know those I didn't get caught. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And now as you know, I've sort of grown up a bit. I say to my kids as they were growing up, look, I'm a mother and a detective and you can't bullshit me. I know everything. And they're like, Jesus, you're right. Yeah. Okay. So, hey. <laughs> It's it always fun growing up with a parent like that who's in uh, law enforcement or something that, hey, don't try it, you know. They've loved it. <laughs> they've tested me with it. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so high potential development schemes. So eventually I got onto that, but not until um, probably seven years later. So I did quite a lot of um, acting sergeant duties, if that makes sense. Uh, and I went, I worked, I only did the first two and a half years in uniform and then I went on to plainclothes squads. So squads that went and did drug warrants and investigated minor, lower level drug dealers. Not like your lot, Murph, I'm afraid, but uh, everything's relative. You've got to start somewhere in the food chain. Uh, a lot of burglars, robbers, 
and um and then I also got into some undercover policing as well so I was busy having quite a good time really before I went for promotion or went on to that fast track scheme what what out of all the crimes that you were working what you you said you started off with a lot of uh theft crimes or burglar crimes, but was there a particular type of offense that caught your attention that you really like said, I want to do this? Because eventually we're going to talk about working homicides, but wh- where did that come from? Did you did you get the chances of the acting sergeant or some of these other things to get involved in some homicide cases? So my very first exposure to a homicide case was when I had a year, year and a half in the job, if that. Uh, there was a murder in Bristol. He was a gay guy who'd been stabbed 32 times in his flat and they didn't know who'd done it and he worked um he worked on the railways actually which was one of the challenges of that job because it meant he traveled around the country and met and interacted with a load of different people so they didn't know where the killer had come from so they were running that uh murder inquiry and in those days you only ever had men who were the senior investigating officer, the SIO. Uh, and in fact, generally, you only have men who worked on the inquiry. You might have one or two women, but all the others were doing the typing and, you know, putting all the cars, the information in. And they needed someone to go and be the gopher, quite literally be the gopher. And they're like, oh, Judy, they need someone to go over there for a couple of weeks. Do you want to do that? It's like, yeah. If ever anybody says, do you want to do something? I usually just say yes and then either love it or regret it later because I think that's better way to be in life so I went over there and literally I was taking a piece of paper from one room to another room and putting it in a tray I'd make the tea I'd hoover up all those little bits of paper coming out the telex machine at the end of the day and just whatever anybody needed me to do I'd do it but do you know what I loved it the SIO was a guy called Barry Stone but called Barry fucking Stone because every other fucking word was what the fuck are you doing you got you need to get this fucking case fucking solved so an articulate chap (laughs) sounds like Tommy Cedric oh Oh my god God. Uh, well yeah we we, I think what was it Murph like 70 (laughs) percent I can't remember he couldn't talk if he didn't have the f-bomb in his vocabulary yeah my job, I was a bit like that myself sometimes, so you know, I could relate to it. It's probably where it came from, working with him in those early days. Let's so. talk about, before you move on from that real quick, tell us about the distinction. What is, is there a particular rank that goes with being an SIO, a senior investigating officer, or is that a rank, but you're just given the responsibility of managing something? Yeah, so um, in those days, to be an SIO, you generally had to be a superintendent. Uh, as time's gone on, you could be an inspector or above, but you have to get accredited. So you have to go through a process of investigating homicides, being mentored, uh, investigating a variety of homicides, and then you get signed off by the College of Policing. What is the role of an SIO? So you're in charge of the murder investigation. It's your gig, if you like. So it's up to you. So I was an SIO. So if a murder comes in, and it's my job. Um, I make sure I've got the right resources. I set all the direction, the focus, the actions, task everybody up as to what we're going to do, where we're going to go. And you either stand or fall by it. So it's up to you to make sure you're successful and to solve it. So you call all the shots. Yeah, exactly. Everything. So let's talk about then from that homicide, as you were working these plainclothes units and stuff, where did you find yourself gravitating? Because at some point you move into full-time investigations. Yeah. So after that, so I loved that. 
that homicide and stayed there for six weeks rather than two, just as their gopher. But I just learned so much about how a murder inquiry room is really uh, methodical and regimented and it needs to be so you don't miss anything. So I learned how the room operates. I work with people in those days, they used to get seconded in from different teams to work on murders. So I worked with people from the drug squad and the crime squad. And then following on from that, I then managed to get myself as a comment on the drug squad. And again, that was meant to be for a couple of weeks, but I was there for a year. So I really enjoyed that. So that's where I got a bit of a love for surveillance and working undercover, following people and all that sort of work. Um, so I carried on from that into plain clothes. And then um, I then got pregnant, which was I'd got married, I think, and then got pregnant. You think that, you get you think yeah. you got married? I mean, I was married. it a blur? Yeah. <laughs> it was a bit of a blur. <laughs> he went to Bosnia ten days after we got married, so it didn't really. Uh, which which didn't branch have, of the military was he? Yeah, he's military. Yeah, so it didn't have. I a mean, very which good branch? Gig. Army, Air Force, Air Force, Air Force. Yeah, RF regiment he was. So, yeah, so then I was all ready to go um, on my accelerator promotion and I found out I was pregnant, which wasn't planned. And I was at work crying for three weeks and the guys are like, Julia, it should be really good news. And I'm like, it's not really good news. It's just going to bugger up my whole career. I don't want to have a baby and I don't know what to do with them and I'm going to be fat. <laughs> <laughs> so they're like, ah, oh, don't worry. So I carried on doing a lot of the work that I have been doing. So I still did some undercover work while I was pregnant. Hold on. I need to do a quick public service announcement. If you are Julie's oldest child, do not listen to this podcast. <laughs> he knows this. I told him. Oh, <laughs> He's a tough kid. We've moved on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Cal, you love it. <laughs> so, yeah. So I did all that. Uh, I can tell you that, you know, being a, a fat hippo pregnant person, it's really easy to get in and out of OPs, you know, in the observation points in people's houses when you're watching all these drug dealers because they don't look twice at you ever. So I managed to do quite a lot of work still. And then at the same time, they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to put you up for the uh, for the high, high potential scheme now, the fast track scheme for promotion. And I'm like... I don't think so because my head's not really working. And yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't want to discriminate against you just because you're pregnant. It's like, right, fine. So off I went for three days of assessments. Uh, and honest to God, I was 37 weeks pregnant at that stage. I mean, yeah, I was big. My brain didn't work properly. They do all these psychometric tests, which obviously I know the answers, but I couldn't write it down. I was interviewed by different chief officers and they were asking me questions. And I just literally, I could not say what I knew I needed to say. It's like I'd had a stroke. It's pathetic. And in the end, I just said, I'm really, really sorry. Because they were asking me about sense of humour. I said, yeah, I've got sense of humour. I said, uh, my position sat here like a hippo in front of you lot, not being able to answer the questions because my brain is just mush, is actually quite entertaining. And I'm just going to get my coat now and go. And that's what I did. <laughs> walked out. <laughs> well, hey, you showed you can make a decision on the spot. Oh, I can make a decision. <laughs> I've told this story before, but uh, you might appreciate it. So I had a couple of my friends who were New Scotland Yard, but he was telling me a story about a promotion board one time. He said it was very difficult. And he says, you're in there and they're asking you these impossible things. And it's like, you're standing guard outside Puckingham Palace. The IRA attacks the queen as she's coming out. A bomb goes off two blocks away and then an airplane crashes at the same time. He says, what do you do? He goes, uh, take off my uniform and blend in with the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> 
head to the Absolutely. pub. <laughs> it's a no-win situation no matter what you do. I know. Yeah, so that didn't go too well, really. Anyway, then I went and had my baby. I'm going to take a guess that you probably didn't get fast-tracked because of that interview, right? Yeah, well, I don't know. I just went back and just said, you know, you shouldn't... To be honest, they shouldn't have sent me up there at 37 weeks pregnant. You know, you just... Your brain is... Whatever you want to say or do, your brain is just not in that right place. Well, 37 weeks, you're already a little bit behind on delivery, right? 40 Holy weeks. Cow. Yeah, three weeks out I was. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I could have given birth there. That would have given them something to talk about, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that well, was a very the... interesting story from the podcast. <laughs> you thought the skirt on the fence was a good story. Wait till you hear this one. <laughs> <laughs> look, my wife and my sister, um, uh, my oldest sister, she was having a baby. My wife was having a baby both in July in Kansas where it's hot and miserable. And that ended up being the joke is like, how many, how many pregnant women does it change to take a, or does it take to change the light bulb? Just one. You got a problem with it? You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, very quickly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> don't piss her off, Morgan. Don't, don't make her mad here. So then, yeah. So then I was, I had baby. On, we need to rewind for just a second because you kind of lost over it. How, what were the circumstances of you meeting uh, a bloke in the Royal Air Force, getting married, and then 10 days later, he's off? What was the rom- How long were you guys going out? How long was the romance before the marriage happened? I know. We'd been together for five or six years before we got married. So, yeah. Was that the investigation they needed to do on you because you were living in sin? Yeah. I had to. Um, when I, um, when at the end of your two-year probation, so we do two years for our initial probation and policing in the UK, and when you finish that, you go and see the head of the district, some chief superintendent. And the first thing he asked me when I went in there was uh, where I was living and who I was living with and had I put a report on getting authority for it, which I thought was a bit below the belt. And the second thing he said to me was, well, you'll never stay in this job more than uh, the next three years because you'll go and have children and leave. That's what all women do. And to be honest, that really fucked me off. And I thought, don't tell me I can't do something. And that was a big driver. He doesn't realize how much he probably influenced my career by making me really driven to A, prove him wrong, and B, to be really successful. Well, you got to love it when a man tells you how to be a woman, don't you? Well, I know. And also that you can't stay in policing because you've got to go and have babies. It's probably why I was crying when I was pregnant. Because of him. <laughs> <laughs> See, and we would have glossed over a very important point about your motivation. And kind of that's what I was looking for is that, so, and this, this old dinosaur, I mean, uh, in, anyway, how old was this guy? It's like, it seems to me like he's probably in his late fifties, early sixties or something. Yeah. So I, he would not have been that old. He would have been in his forties. Because well, he acted like somebody in his sixties then. Yeah. He acted like someone who's like 130, didn't he? He's just a, a misogynistic, bigoted bloke. And sadly. There's Julie, plenty of them around. Don't hold back. We want you to tell us what you really think here. Yeah, I will. <laughs> <laughs> I've come across plenty of those sort of blokes. But do you know what? I, I counter it with also the people that have inspired me most in policing have been men who have been brilliant detectives and SIOs. So I've been really lucky. Yeah, I've met those misogynistic sexist pigs. And yeah, they sometimes you can tell them to go do one. Sometimes you can't. Obviously, you probably get the gist to generally say what I think, 
which is probably then why I didn't get promoted for a long time. Start to pick up on that just a little bit here. <laughs> I, I kind of suffered from that too. But hey, did you ever have a chance to run into this uh, ass nugget um, later on in your career and prove him wrong, or was that just the one interaction? No, I just avoided him. He's not worth wasting your breath on, was he? He went on and retired, and yeah. He's, I didn't think that he was worthy of being in my presence, to be honest with you. So, yeah, just annoyed him. Love it. Love it. So you were you were living together, but what made you decide to get married? Because he was going to Bosnia, and uh, I wouldn't be recognized as the next of kin if he got killed out there, and I wouldn't be entitled to certain stuff. Sounds a bit like, um, yeah. Well, you got a plan. Malice. You got a plan. <laughs> pragmatic you had earned your stripes so to speak you know living now was he uh what what kind of work did he do in the air force uh so he was uh rf regiment so defending airfields bosnia he worked with the un so yeah he did quite a lot of un work actually in fact he was lucky because sorry he was lucky because uh he'd come back for a week on R&R and where he was staying in Mostar uh, the house that he was in one of the family members there got killed while he was away so that could quite easily have been him to be honest with you just by a sniper attack just the luck of the draw isn't it yeah uh, that was a that was a tough time Bosnia Herzegovina you know everything that was going on over there the um the killings and everything else is just terrible oh it's horrific it's, it's not dissimilar to Ukraine now is it really it's just terrible right. Yeah, right. absolutely terrible. So yeah, so then, um, so so the and the the consequence of that though, of course, is being married to somebody in the military and having children, is that he was away a lot. So I started off my life pretty much with children as a single parent. He first went away when my baby was ten days old. So um, and back in those days when you got promoted to sergeant you had to work early slates and nights and i couldn't work early slates and nights then because i didn't have anybody at home to look after the baby overnight so that really put the kibosh on any promotion notwithstanding the fact that i'd walked out of my high potential scheme one it was more a case of the rules were you have to work early slates and nights and i just physically couldn't do that so define early lates and nights i mean i'm assuming that's like early shifts like you have to work Three different shifts. Yeah, so early seven till three, uh, late's three till eleven or two to ten, and uh, nights is ten till six or seven in the morning overnight. Yeah. So you rotate the shifts. Yeah. Sucks. That yeah. sucks. Now I can tell you from my wife was uh, in records and communications and dispatch when I was a trooper and then a detective. It's you're trying to balance kids even with both parents, but when you're working shift work. And trying to balance kids. I mean, again, we we look back sometimes. We go, how did we do that? Tough gig, isn't it? Because I went on and had two more children, and I used to take them. I went back when I did then get promoted, and went back to early dates and nights. I would then come home from nights at seven in the morning. I'd sort the kids out for school and playgroup, take them to playgroup, go to bed at half nine, get up three hours later to pick them up from playgroup, and stay up and then go to work that night. Oh, jeez. And that's just how you survived. So I reckon over the period of three days, I'd have about six hours sleep. Which made, and speaking of the a foggy brain, right? After that little sleep and you're there, it's like... Yeah, and now go and deal with this job. Yeah, this murder, this gun-crazed lunatic, this vulnerable woman, this rape victim, you know, whatever it is, yeah. Hey, let's talk about that for a second. Because... 
most of the time you're not armed. The first time I remember seeing an armed Bobby was when I visited the friend of mine down at New Scotland Yard headquarters, and there was somebody out front armed. Um, but when you, so when you're investigating and you're not armed, but you're dealing with things like a gun crime, you know, how do you approach that? I mean, it's like, uh, of course here, most of us, you know, almost everybody's armed. Um, but how do you approach that? How do you, how do you do that when you're not armed and you know, you're going after a suspect who is armed? Okay. You're going to love this guys. So we don't, we don't have any firearms routinely in British policing and we still don't have it today. If you're a firearms officer today, you're trained and you choose to take that pathway. But the vast majority of British police officers don't have firearms. But then at the beginning, it was really used to, then there were certain people that could go and sign a gun out and then they'd have a gun and that would be it. But really quickly, you'd have maybe one or two cars on the streets of the whole of Bristol that were armed cars from the 90s onwards. So today is different, but yeah, really, really low numbers. Um, So I've had twice I've arrested armed robbers with loaded firearms. And the first time was there'd been an armed robbery with a sawn-off shotgun. And they'd made off in a car. They'd given a description of the car. We were driving down the road. This was on night, so I don't know, about one in the morning. Um, Pull the car over. So there were two police cars. There was another one coming up the road. So we hem it in. And there's three people in the car. And you don't think about it. You just jump out, open the doors, and pull people out as quickly as you can because they don't need to have time to be thinking about it. And this guy had this loaded shotgun between his legs, pointing up as I'm opening the door to pull him out, and bag full of ammunition in there. Crazy. But you just got to jump on them and fight. And the other one, that well, was... Well, wait a minute. Uh, no, let's stop there for a second. <laughs> Damn. After you did that, did you reevaluate yourself? Well, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> I mean, come on. It's bad enough when you're armed, but, but you're going to... It's like... Hey, I don't have I don't have a sidearm. I don't have anything but my little tiny stick and maybe a pair of chain link handcuffs. And I'm going after a guy with a sawed off shotgun. Yeah, just don't you just don't think about it, really. I can imagine scarier things than that happen. But yeah, the second one. Yeah, let's talk about the second one. Okay, that was similar. That was a robbery, post office robbery, daytime, four blokes in a car, and that was eleven in the morning. And we were just in really long queues of traffic going down through the, the high street. And we were driving out the other way. And they got a registration number. So you're looking at every car, aren't you, at the registration number. You know, you guys all know what it's like. And you get a number plate. What do you call it? You just... License plate. License plate, that's it. When you get a license plate, you're there looking, usually for the last three, because that's the quickest way to lock on, isn't it? And suddenly it was there in front of us, just over uh, Zebra Crossing pedestrian crossing nearly took out a woman on the crossing as we spun the car around and always drive the car i've done it quite a few times and perhaps you shouldn't have done but drive the car into the driver's door so they can't get out that's quite a good tactic isn't it and then jumped out with the guy i was with one bloke was off and running straight away the driver we handcuffed to the steering wheel Another guy out the back was off and running and then there was one left in the back that we were fighting with and he had a knife a big kitchen knife and he had a loaded firearm uh, we managed to get the gun and just move that out of the way but trying to fight with him in the back of the car as he's trying to stab us uh, was that was a bit crazy and asked for backup obviously 
the first guy who arrived as backup on that call had come from the city centre and he had a witness on board who'd been taken down to look at some mugshots. Oh. <laughs> that poor girl, she sat in the car, shit scared because he was a lunatic driver. <laughs> so we managed to get our two robbers there locked up. And then parked alongside the robber's car on double yellow lines, it's like this little old guy in his car there. And he's like, excuse me. And by this time, you can imagine, I'm a bit fraught because I've nearly been stabbed. We've got these two guys now that we've just about managed to get under control. I was like, yes. He said, I think you should move that car. You're causing an obstruction. (laughs) I just looked at him and I said, and I think you should fuck off because you're on a double yellow line. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, they've just done a fucking robbery, you lunatic. (laughs) I can see tact was one of your major virtues. I got you promoted early and often. Very good. Oh, my God. (laughs) What was wrong with the public? Just take when, so when you guys were fighting the guy with the knife, yeah. and there's a, when there's a gun, did it ever enter your mind to use the gun against him to protect yourself? Never. No, the thing's to get the gun out of the way. I was more interested in not getting stabbed, to be honest. But but what if you couldn't? I mean, if what if your only last resort? He's you've got access to the pistol, and he's got a knife, and it's at your throat. What do you do? Oh, I, I wouldn't do it. I don't think. So no, that would never enter my head. I've never. You've used guns like air rifles for shooting, but never, never firearms. I'm not a firearm person. Did Now, did you, when you guys stand part of your equipment, uh, at what point did you start wearing vests? I know because they have, we've got the ballistic vest, but you've got the stab vest too. Yeah, stab vest came in the 90s. So probably just about after that, um, when they came out. And yeah, they're heavy, aren't they? They weigh nearly a stone, you know that. How are you meant to run and chase people when you've got all that kit on? Well, and then try doing it when you've got now the arm, you've got the plates, the ballistic plates on the front. Yeah, Kevlar plates, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, really, really difficult. Did you end up getting the other two? Yep, I did. Uh, One that day, eventually, uh, because he was spotted running uh, through some gardens, and the other one three days later. Wow. I I hate to keep beating a dead dead horse here, but why would they not use the gun against you? Because we're too quick. <laughs> we're so quick on them. They didn't expect us to be there in that car. I mean, I'm not saying that he wouldn't have if he couldn't have got his hands on it, but you've just got to be quick, haven't you? You haven't got time to stop and think. Either you're going to do it or you're not. You either decide I'm going to take these guys out or you're going to let them run. Now, did you have an ASP or a, a collapsible baton or anything else with you? Uh, asps did come we didn't have asps then but again just because you're in the confines of the car it's really difficult i've only used an asp a few times but that's usually when you've got a bit of distance between you and the person um so yeah just generally you're too close when you're fighting with people to actually even have anything that's well you kind of knock them off balance when you crash into the side of the driver's (laughs) car yeah that's always quite good (laughs) nobody's (laughs) expecting that hello Hello, hello, hello. Yeah, they're probably thinking, I can't yeah. believe the cop just hit me, and then you snatch him right out of the car. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, know, I exactly. can't believe you were blocking the intersection and not letting the people through. That's the part that just not killed the me. old fella parts on the WL lines. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to send you back to community policing class for that one. <laughs> oh, my God. We've just saved the public from these dreadful people, and he's worried about a little obstruction. Unbelievable. So before let's before we talk about Melanie's case, what was 
two cases, two types of cases I want to ask about. What was the funniest one or the funnest one you had? But what was the one that had the most impact on you too? Ah, it's really difficult that. So so one of the ones that had the most impact on me and probably is why I do work that I do now was a domestic abuse case. So that was really early on when domestic abuse was not understood or treated in the way it is today. So we're called to, I mean, you guys, I'm sure you'll know from all your experience as well, that people have domestics all the time. The police used to go all the time. And basically, if they're not dead, then that's fine. You know, are you all right? Yes, I am. Thank you very much. But <clears throat> neighbours had rung about the screaming and shouting going on in a house. Uh, it was I was in the evening. It was dark. It was winter. So about eight o'clock at night, pitch black. Went knocked on the door. Me, uh, another guy, and I'm not kidding. This man mounting comes to the door. He's bloody massive, and he's like, "You're not fucking coming in here. There's nothing for you to worry about." I was like, "Okay," and I said, "Well, I don't think that's quite going to happen. Let's just come in and see." the woman in the house and just make sure she's all right shall we so we do a bit of negotiating on the doorstep when clearly he's not going to let anybody in willingly and in the end he says right you can come in pointing to me and you can go and talk to her so well this is only going to go one of two ways isn't it which is probably going to result in me being locked in the house now as well and it's all going to go badly wrong uh so I went in and she was in the sitting room completely naked kneeling down in a fetal position and there wasn't a bit of her body that wasn't bruised black and blue and he'd raped her vaginally and anally and just beaten the crap out of her and it was I don't know why it was that particular case because I've dealt with a lot of um, domestic abuse but it was just like worse than you treat your worst enemy or an animal it was horrific and it took me 40 minutes to negotiate with him to be allowed to get her out of the address. So I managed eventually to get something, piece of clothing for her to put on and get her out. And then once I got her away, then <clears throat> the guys went in and obviously he came out and was arrested. Did he resist? Oh, yes. <laughs> Whether he wanted to or not. <laughs> <laughs> he was resisting, yeah. He definitely was not coming quietly. Wow. Which is why I was so keen that me and her should be able to get out of the house first because, you know, right. he he would have taken it out on all of us, definitely. So what was the what was the outcome of the case? So rather typically as well with domestic abuse cases. So she did um so she gave a statement and she was examined and everything was documented. But when it came to going to court, she wouldn't go through with it. She wouldn't give evidence. And then I subsequently learned months later that she was back with him and it's just really indicative of a lot of abuse cases and it's really really hard cycle for people to break you know whether they're male or female victims of abuse it doesn't matter you know unfortunately it's like that here in the united states as well yeah well and steve that's i remember some homicides that way too but um they would go back you say why did you do that but that was the challenge is trying to un- understand psychologically. I did, I couldn't understand it, but you had to understand it through their eyes. And it's like they were more afraid of being alone mm-hmm. and without support than they were of the beatings they were going to get. Right. And I remember going to, a, a, as a 
street cop, you know, working a beat. We get sent to a, a domestic uh, one night. We'd been called there several times. And it's like, we're going to arrest this guy this time. This is back before the laws were where you could arrest, even though you didn't see it, but if there was visible evidence. So we, the only time we could arrest for that back in the day was you had to see it going on. It had to occur in front of you. So what I did this time is shut off the lights, sirens, no nothing, parked a block away, walk up, and I walked through the window till I could see him hit her or do something. Go in to arrest him. You think we're the savior. What does she do? She jumps on my back and starts beating me about the head yeah. and starts fighting the other guy. And it's like, now we got to fight two people instead of one. Well, she did that just because it was you, Morgan. I mean, we all feel like we want to do that sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Come knocking on my door, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, maybe I the, got, the husband was beating on me because he was jealous I was much better uh, looking, but I had hair too. Bullshit on and, that. and all my teeth. All my teeth. You know, I, I love it. So uh, for our listeners, as we're doing this interview, we can see each other on video, and I'm watching Julie here, and you can tell when a story comes to mind, because she gets this big f- smile on her face like, oh, I've got one for you now. <laughs> well, let's hear it, Julie. Yeah. Let's hear the one that caused the smile. See, I, don't, I, I mean, there's so many great and funny things that have happened in your policing career, aren't there? And it's difficult, really, to to think of one that's, I don't know, really, which one to tell you. <laughs> What do you want to know? <laughs> it's funny, and then there's, yeah, dread. Well, give, give us one kind of like the skirt. What's the most embarrassing one? Okay, so i got, yeah, i got lots of those. <laughs> that was quick. Look at that. <laughs> okay, so uh, we're sat up waiting for a stolen car, because, like, when you're good cops, you know sort of what routes they're going to take, don't you? And uh, we've been waiting about 20 minutes, and then here it comes, straight past. Great. We're off, we're off and running, chasing after it. And in Bristol... Behind all the houses, they've got all little lanes, little bat lanes that go along. Bloody perfect for burglars and car thieves. So we've chased him around the streets, then he goes down some of these bat lanes. And uh, behind, in this one, there's a bit of a grass area, like a little playing field. It's on a hill. So the stolen car goes down the hill and he jumps out as it's moving and starts running. So we're trying, I was in the passenger seat. So the driver starts to stop and the car's sliding down the hill and I'm trying to get out the door. You've got your seatbelt, you've got your radio all caught around the seatbelt because they used to be springy, <laughs> didn't they, the radios in those days. So I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> let me out, let me get out. out. So get out, start running after him and he's gone through a hedge into somebody's back garden. So I go under the hedge after him. The householders heard all the commotion and he's come out and he's standing on his back doorstep saying, what's going on? What the fuck's happening? I'm like, don't worry, as I'm like crawling through the hedge. You know, it's the police. And I think he's the last thing he believed it was the police because by now I'm a bit of a disheveled mess. My hair's everywhere. I'm covered in mud. I chase this guy over another three gardens. We go up the hill, down the hill. And then he goes into another house. And rather than going through the... It's like a, a shiplap fence. And rather than going over the fence, he literally just runs straight through it. And you know, like the Tom and Jerry cartoons, yeah. when you have like the cutout <laughs> when they go through a wall. <laughs> it was just like that. So I went through his hole after him, where another household is coming out saying, what the fuck are you doing in my garden? I was like, don't worry, it's fine, it's the police. And eventually managed to jump on him at the bottom of the hill and sit there on top of him until such time as someone else could come and give us a hand and I could get breath back. <laughs> But yeah, it's just they're just bonkers, aren't they? Oh my god! You're, you're five foot four, barely. Only if you poof your hair. What did you say? How many? You said how many stone? Oh, they're yeah. They're, well, I was nine stone. Yeah. 
So nine stone. Let me see. I gotta. I gotta do the. Hold on a second. Hey Siri, how many pounds is nine stone? Hundred and forty minus hundred and twenty-six pounds. So you're five foot four, barely on a good day. One hundred and twenty-six pounds. You're chasing people in Sydney. What the hell are you thinking? Yeah, I know. I know. I had another one, a burglar I arrested. He had like a bag of swag. That was in the middle of nowhere. He got a tire. And then made his bag. He'd got a load of um, fags in it, cigarettes and alcohol. He'd robbed a shop. And I just thought we were on the we were on a slope where I came across him in the back of a field somewhere. And I thought all he's got to do is like just shove me. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> and I'm gone. <laughs> I'm like, oh, what are you doing then? So like, oh, not a lot. I said, oh, it's in the bag. I said, oh, I said, well, you better come with me then, Hunter. I said, and you can carry the bag as well because it's too big. <laughs> <laughs> and he came along with you. <laughs> yeah, he did. Yeah. Thank God. I know. I have been threatened, obviously. They've threatened to kill me on more than one yeah. occasion by other people. But yeah. Yeah, no, it's lucky. Jeez. Someone's been really lucky. <laughs> Tell you what, um, if you were a guy, I'd say, man, what a set of stones. You know, it's like, <laughs> but you have, to, you have to do that though, right? You have to, they did, I mean, the bad guys, the bad girls, they detect if you're not confident in, in what you're doing, right? They detect if you don't you got to be the you got to be the apex predator in a sense when you're out there. You got to be at the top of the food chain because if you're not, you become part of the food chain because these folks will eat you up. Yeah, they will. They will. Yeah, and if you if you're if they don't think you're in charge, then absolutely. And if you're afraid yeah, to do the job, go get a different career. Yeah, yeah. What's the best it. practical joke you ever played on somebody? <sighs> <laughs> Oh, Here we go. Okay, good. there's the recognition. <laughs> I wish you guys could see her. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sorry, guys. Just laugh. That's funny. So I don't know if it's the best, but uh, one of the funniest was so you'd arrange a call for one of your colleagues. Nights is obviously always the time, isn't it? <clears throat> a report of a prowl or a burglar or something. You get the control room to call them up. So they go park up their police car go off looking for whatever they're looking for. You'd get the spare set of keys, go and get their police car and pinch it. <laughs> and then when they came back, if <laughs> you're sat there watching as they're like, where's the car? Where's the car gone? I'm sure I parked the car here. And they're wondering how long they're going to wait before they actually call up to say they've lost the car or the car's been nicked. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? Nickel's on here in the U.S. as well. Oh, yeah. It's it's really childish, isn't it? It is. It is. <laughs> I had a practical joke go south one time, and it was uh, we were trying to teach an officer, when you get out of the car, roll up your windows and lock it. Quit leaving it open because you had the radar unit in there. You actually had a weapon in there. And he went to a caller, did something one time, and we thought a couple of us thought, hey, let's teach him a lesson. So we stole the radar out of there and the shotgun. Oh, my God. And he comes back, and we're sitting back thinking, okay, let's see how he calls it in. We're watching. He looks around. He rolls up his window, takes a rock, and throws it through oh, the window. No! <laughs> there you go. How'd you explain that one away? <laughs> Especially with the witnesses. Dear Captain, nobody was more surprised than me when we witnessed Officer so-and-so. Oh, man. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that that one that was a that was a bad one that went south. Uh, I, I will not mention the location or the officer involved. I'm pretty sure the statute of limitations don't apply, but um, I, I don't want to be complicit in anything. So, but yeah, definitely. Oh not. my goodness! All right, so let's let's start doing this now. Let's start 
getting ourselves geared up to talk about Melanie because I, I, you, you know, reading your book too, um, you had some struggles. I mean, you had some struggles getting promoted and, and it's not, I mean, it's like you're trying to juggle. You've got a marriage that's going south at that point, as we say, you know, it's, it's ending and you're struggling with a lot of things. So how do you do it? I mean, how do you get what you want to out of your career at the same time, balancing all of this. And at the same time, you're splitting up, having to find a place to live. I mean, is there anything else that you could be doing at this time? Yeah, I could probably just put my feet up and say enough's enough. <laughs> that would have been the sensible thing, wouldn't it? <clears throat> have a word with yourself. But yeah, no, I mean, and the book, it, it, as you know, it's um, it's a quite a personal story as well as the investigation. And the reason for that is because everybody has struggles and challenges in life. Everyone does. And we can overcome them because we are generally all brilliant. It's just sometimes at the time, you can't really work out what on earth you're going to do next. So, yeah. Yeah, it was tough. And so Melanie, Melanie Rhodes, she was murdered in 1984. And there's just a couple of things that are similar, really. So she was, she was murdered in Bath, the Georgian city of Bath. And she was, she'd been out in Bath to a nightclub. And I was just a little bit younger than her. And we'd moved down there, um, just in 1986 or seven, something like that. So, but I went to the same nightclubs that she went to. I was really similar individual to her. So, although she was 18 months older than me, I'd describe us as similar. We, we like to be out, we like to talk to people. We were both um, going to have a good life ahead of us, if you like. And of course, sadly, hear, at that time, did you hear when the homicide happened? <coughs> did you hear about it or did you? I didn't that, know it. Okay. No, I didn't know of it then. And she was only 17 when she was murdered. So she's walking home um, from a club and she's raped and stabbed 26 times. And I used to walk home all the time in those days. I never thought twice about it. And so, you know, that for all things being equal, that could have been me instead of her that was killed on that night. If I had just been in a different place at a different time, well, that killer had. So that's one of the things about Melanie, I suppose, that when I got to know the story that struck me, that I just realized all of that. And then um, 12 years... Before you go on to that, though, to talk about, because I thought, Steve and I were talking about this on an episode yesterday. Unfortunately, during my career, I've had to, you give people the worst news they're ever going to get in their life. You have to tell them a loved one's dead, a loved one's been yeah. killed. Talk about about how how this all got started. Talk about how her parents found out, how her mother found out. So in um, in 1984, there was no mobile phones. There was obviously TV, but um, they found Melanie's body. So she was just lands down in Bath. It's a really affluent area of Bath. It's really rich and nice big houses, and just in a little cul-de-sac there by some garages. Uh, her body had been left there, so she was killed and left there. And the milkman and his 10-year-old son were delivering milk and came across her. And a little boy found her, and he's like, Dad, look, you know, there's a girl there. I don't know if she's ill or something, because she looked beautiful, to be honest. It wasn't really a very bloody scene. And so when the police came, they found just on a small wall above where she was lying were a set of keys and on the keys was a key fob in wood that had Melanie. So taking that, that her name was Melanie, they then started driving around all the associated streets and she's just 200 metres from home uh, with a loudspeaker saying, Melanie, does anybody know a girl called Melanie? And 
Jean, her mum, and her dad, Tony, were at home. And Jean has just said to her husband, you know, have you heard from Melanie? So she used to stay out sometimes at friends' houses overnight when she'd been out. And then she'd ring in the morning on the landline as we know it now, which obviously is completely different to the mobiles. Um, and just say, I'm all right, Mama, I'll be home later. But she hadn't rung and Jean thought it was a bit strange. Then she could hear this loud hailer outside. Uh, and she goes out and she's literally, the police car's just driving out of their cul-de-sac and she's like chasing it down the road, banging on the boot saying, you know, Melanie, we've got a Melanie. And she didn't come home last night. Mm. Oh, my God. Was that, you talk about a way to find, I mean, how heartbreaking yeah. is that? I mean, you've got to go chase down a police car to find out your own child's been murdered. Wow. Yeah. Was that common to ride around a neighborhood like that and announce it on the PA system? Um, I think the difficulty then was that where else do you begin to work out who she is? Because there's nobody been reported missing right. at that stage. Right. The only clue that they had was the name. And I guess they thought that was the most effective way of trying to work it out. And it worked. I wouldn't say it was common, but yeah, it worked. Yeah. It's heartbreaking for oh, Jean. Yeah. You know, absolutely heartbreaking. Mm. You can imagine, can't you? Well, so that's, I mean, and that the reason I wanted to spend just a little time setting the context is I want everybody to, because you don't have contact with this case for years. I mean, is no. it, so how long into, how many years after uh, Melanie is murdered do you have first contact with this case? So I don't have contact with that case uh, for ages, but the first I get to really hear about it is 12 years to the day later, the same day, 8th of June. In 1996, there was another murder. Well, it's not a murder. She goes missing from a nightclub. A girl called Melanie, again, which is um, Melanie Hall, goes missing from a nightclub in Bath. And I get sent to work on that case um, as an undercover officer. So I get sent into the club because they think uh, that might be something to do with the club. So now you've got two girls who've been, uh, one's missing, the other one was murdered, having come out of nightclubs in Bath on the same day in June, but 12 years apart, both called Melanie. Wow. So that was like a bit spooky, yeah. to say the least. Wow. Um, and so, of course, as they were doing inquiries into Melanie Hall, they were also um, always cognizant of Melanie Road, who'd been murdered 12 years earlier. So that's when I first heard or knew anything about Melanie Road. The next bit that touched me with it really was in 2000, so 16 years later. Is that right? 84, yeah. And um, I was at Bath Police Station then, so I'd gone to Bath to work. I was there as a detective. And a couple of um, wily old detectives in the office, you guys would love them, Woody, brilliant thief taker, really meticulous and like a photographic memory, just phenomenal. And another guy, Bob Eames, Ema, so Ema was the guy who's like constantly had a fag on the go and coffee on the go and he's sitting at a desk in the corner, you know, like when smoking's banned in all offices, obviously it didn't apply to him. <laughs> and then the boss would come in and he'd like shove his fag in his drawer and there'd be all this smoke coming out and then it'd start catching fire. <laughs> like, oh my God. <laughs> it's like, Ema, your desk is on fire. You need to put it out. <laughs> We're all going to get done here. But they were just phenomenal. And they, so they started reviewing the case. And I was like, oh, tell me about this case. I'm really interested because I was just, I'd worked on a lot of murders by them. But you were still a constable at this point, right? Not so, yet, Yeah. Not a yeah, detective. I, I got, um, I was a detective. 
Yeah. Okay, detective. Detective okay. constable, yeah. And I got promoted to sergeant a year later. So, yeah, I was detective constable. So I passed all my exams. I sat up burning the midnight oil with my babies, revising. And, yeah, so I was a detective. And DNA was um, – so DNA had come in in 1995, but they were just doing some work, the very, very first familial DNA. And it was like, did you know as well from DNA they can tell you what the offender looks like because we had a full DNA profile of the offender. So they could start telling things around what um, ethnicity they were, so whether they were black, Caucasian, white, and starting to be able to tell you as well about perhaps colour of their hair and those sort of genetics. So obviously ginger hair's got a really strong genetic theme to it. And I was just fascinated, really. So that's when I learned the next bit about it. But I didn't start working on it properly until 2009. And I'd just moved there and I'd been promoted by then to sergeant. And I'd gone... I'd done some work in Bath as a detective sergeant. I'd well, worked. Let's, let's stop there for a second because you came on in 1988. You were fast tracking. It took you till 2009 to get that promotion. You're uh, no, 2001. You? Yeah, 14 years. <laughs> You're persistent. <laughs> I know. I just had to wait for like my kids to get a bit bigger and yeah, a husband that wasn't in the forces anymore, and then I could apply. And then when I applied, I was off. Well, well and but. How, so let's talk about that for a second before we get into the, how, what did it change for you to make sergeant? You know, when, when you made sergeant, was it like, ah, okay, I've done it. Or was it like more like, you know, finally, cause I mean, you, you, you took tests. I mean, like you said, you're trying to raise a family, got three kids so that to, to do, to make it. And I just based on what you said, it's a pretty rigorous process. It sounds like to make sergeant, to test for sergeant, you know, it's not like come in, answer a few questions, we'll do a board and okay, you've been anointed. It's like, it seems like a fairly rigorous process. Yeah, it is. You have to application forms. I mean, the paper sifting is always the hardest thing. And and subsequently later on in my career, paper sifting caused me no end of problems just because they seem to change the rules every time you do it. And trying to work out what the rules are is really, really hard. And then you're right. Then you sit aboard. And, and it's competitive. You know, there's only a limited number of places and there's a lot of people want it. It's really, really competitive to get promoted at every rank. So, so how, when you finally got that notification, as the, as the, as the psychiatrist say, as Freud would say, how did that make you feel? <laughs> yeah, that made me feel really, really good. I was really excited. And then... They said, you're going back to uniform to early's, lates and nights. So 14 years later, we still hadn't moved on. I was like, great, bring it on. How old were your children at that time when you got promoted? Um, so Toby was one. Uh, Connie was two. There's just 14 months between those two. And Cal's um, five. Wow, little ones. Wow. wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, no, they were small. And Connie never slept as a baby. She didn't sleep for the first four years of her life. And she quite enjoyed crying, I think. <laughs> Colic or? I don't know really what it was. So um, when uh, when I was eight months pregnant with Connie, so she was my second one, um, my husband, it's probably give you a bit of a clue as to why things didn't quite work out with us, but he, he called me, I was at work. He called me and said, uh, oh, I've got a chance to go to Sierra Leone with the UN. I said, okay. I said, I'm like, well, I presume you're actually, if it's optional and not going to take that option on this occasion, because, you know, we've got one baby, another one on the way, and it's going to be quite tough. Uh, And uh, he came home that night and said, yeah, I'm leaving in five days time. 
and he took it and went. So I ended up having my second child on my own and with obviously a three-year-old and she never slept. I think it's because I was so stressed. Yeah, he came back when she was four months old. Wow. Mm. Caught me on the hop and then I was pregnant again with a third one, which they were really pissy about at work actually as well. <laughs> I thought, God, you're pissy. You want to try sitting in my shoes. It's not easy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so three kids, you made sergeant and you said you're back to uniforms for a while? Yeah, so I'm back to uniform to early's late at night. So I've got a team um of constables and there was obviously inspector was my boss and off we went and uh, it was quite entertaining really because I I you know I was used to working in Bristol as a thief taker and actually it was quite exciting to be back on uniform and back out on the streets and off I go and you know in the first two nights I'm there having car chases and chasing them down the streets and all that and I'm calling on the radio saying you know this is what's going on does someone want to come and help me and it's like radio silence I was like, come on, you lot, what's going on? They just weren't used to it being proactive. And so I had a little chat with them, (laughs) told them, look, this is how it works. (laughs) You either join the party or get yourself a different team. This is what we're about. Um, And we had loads of fun. And we used to set up loads of proactive operations. We'd have all those kids off their mopeds. We'd have those perverts flashing all around the streets. That guy, he's standing in a shop window, right, behind a woman sorry, next to a shop window. This is on night. So I was just out on my own flashing, like masturbating behind her. And I just saw him. I was like, you dirty pervert. So I shouted at him and started running. And of course he started running. And there was a nightclub just next door and the bouncers saw what was happening. So they start running with me and they're on their radios to all their other bouncer mates at all the other nightclubs in Bath. And between us, eventually we catch him with a pincer movement <laughs> from the bouncers coming out from the other nightclubs. Because <laughs> this stupid idiot, you don't want to be jumped on by a bouncer. It's one thing me, yeah. isn't it? But yeah. thing I love it. Oh, I'm sorry. Somebody in a raincoat playing hanky-panky with the old, you know, hand to glen combat. Yeah. I don't want to touch the guy. I'll let somebody else <laughs> Well, I'm sure that they no, probably no, gave no, him a no, strong no. arm when he came by, you know? You can't afford to be squeamish. Yeah, they dealt with him anyway. Oh, no, it's, it's not that I'm squeamish. It's like, look, if there's somebody else to take the hit, <laughs> I'm going to come in like MacArthur, just lay claim in victory and handcuff the guy, say thank you guys very much. Anyway, subsequently discovered he was the local guitar teacher. <laughs> so, yeah, he was definitely a wrong strumming, strumming something different that night, wasn't he? He was, yeah. <laughs> he was plucking the wrong thing that night. Yeah. You wouldn't want him with your children, Heck would you? No. Yeah. Heck no. He had so, a one-string yeah, so one guitar, yeah. <laughs> he did. <laughs> one-string guitar yeah. he played far too often or once too often. <laughs> anyway, he did it in front of the wrong person that night, so that was the end of that strumming session for him, wasn't it? How did the, So how did your troops, when you gave them, you know, when you called them all together after that first night and tuned everybody up, I mean, did they take that uh, positively? I think they're like, who the fuck is this woman? Like, that's what I think they think. <laughs> As if they didn't know me already. But once they got the hang of it, they loved it. Honestly, we were great. We were nicking people every night, right, left and centre. We've got all our little stuff going on, you know, and just changed all that bad behaviour that was upsetting everybody and stopped all those car thieves and burglars and robberies and just made a positive impact for the people there. That's what it's about, nice. isn't it? Very nice. Yeah, it's great. 
You need someone at the front, don't you, leading them, saying, come on, this is what we're doing. This is the party. Come play. As they say, the speed of the pack is determined by the speed of the leader. Mm-hmm. If you're not leading, you're following, right? What's Ricky Bobby? Have you ever seen the movie Talladega Nights with uh, Will Ferrell in it? Ricky Bobby. Yeah, Ricky Bobby. So I love Will Ferrell, but I can't think that I've seen that movie. He's, he's a NASCAR driver, but it's, his old saying was, if you ain't first, you're last, you know? Yeah, exactly. I'm with him on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all right. <laughs> And I'm very much a leader from the front and, you know, very much that if I'm not prepared to do it myself, I'm not going to be asking you to do it. So I'd never ask you to do anything that I wouldn't do myself. Well, you were out there doing it, though. That's the whole thing they could do. (laughs) Getting into trouble. Yeah, that was the thing. They're like, oh, my God, what are you doing tonight? (laughs) I say, come on, it's fine. How did you migrate then? Uh, what was your transition? I said migrate. Yeah. Sounds like a word. Migrate to Reba. It reminds me of uh, of uh, Monty Python. Uh, what's the speed of an unladen swallow? I don't know. The migrate to Reba patterns. Um, so how did you transition then? Or what was the transition from going from uniform back into investigations? Because like you say, eventually what we want to do now is let's, let's get you into the Melanie case. Yeah, so um, I did 14 months in uniform as a sergeant there. And then, uh, all I mean, all the time I was always knocking on the door to get back in the CID. And then eventually there's a space comes up and that's what I do. I went across, I was a detective sergeant then in that office there. So just main office dealing with all those crimes. And then I went from there. Just before I went to work on Melanie, I went and worked in professional standards. But I worked on the um, basically investigating corrupt cops so I did a lot of work around them. Let's let's talk about that for a second, because that's that's a tough thing to be in. Look, and Murph and I have a saying, nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop. Yeah. And there are some things, too. And you're not just talking about, your point was, you weren't just investigating people for just like minor infractions of policy. You're talking about investigating them for a serious crime. Yeah. So I'm talking about drug dealing, about selling our intelligence, a rape. Oh, jeez. Um, yeah, real... Yeah, top end crime. Did really. you volunteer for that position? Yeah, I did. And I'll tell you why. Because I thought if you needed somebody like me in there, because if you would been accused of something you hadn't do, you needed someone like me to prove it. And if you were being accused of something you did do, you needed someone like me to prove it. I was either going to make sure that you were cleared or you were going to court and going to prison. I like it. Um yeah, that was that was always you know I was always straight down the line. Everything was always done properly. If you were good, I proved that you were good. And if it was you know malicious complaints, that was fine. But if you were bad, believe me, I was going to make sure you were going out the way it should be. What was the what was the ratio between valid, legitimate complaints, things that ended up in charges, and things that were malicious that were um, unfounded? Not not even you couldn't. It's not like well we don't not enough proof. It's like this never happened. Yeah, so I think it's really hard to say, isn't it? Because I don't know. I didn't do that work around that. I would say probably 25% unfounded, 25% convicted, and 50%. You couldn't prove it, but there's definitely something not quite right about them. What did you do in those cases where you you didn't have enough to convict uh, and it was clear it wasn't the unfounded case? They were in that gray area. What did you do with them? So it depends what the uh, what the circumstances were, but sometimes I just have them in and tell them this is the intelligence, uh, and you know I can't prove it, but I'm telling you that I'm watching you, um, and that if you are preying on those vulnerable women, there's a lot of that. Um, you're going to be monitored, 
and if you step out of line, I'm going to find out about it. If you are doing drugs just because you passed the drug test this time doesn't mean that I'm not going to come back and do another one when you're not expecting it. If you are um, liaising with those criminals that are like, we're talking, you know, organised crime group, not just some burglar mate in the pub, you're, I know that you're mixing with those people. You went to school with them. You go to the gym with them. They're in your phone book. And I'm telling you now, if I find the evidence that you're selling our secrets or doing things you shouldn't be, I'm coming back for you. And quite a lot of the time that would work. Sometimes it won't. And they do fall, don't they? They all come eventually. So They think yeah. they're smarter than everybody else and they always screw up. They do. They think they're so clever, don't yeah. they? Yeah, I know. What was the what was an example uh, of the ones that were convicted and went to prison? What was like a couple of examples of the type of cases that would result in convictions? So the most incredible one, as in I can't believe he did it, was a cop in uniform shoplifting in a store on CCTV and is challenged by the security guard and then threatens the security guard that he's going to make him lose his job and no one's going to believe him because he's a cop. I just thought, how could you go doing that in uniform? Found that incredible. When they said there's CCTV, I was like, nah. The, one of the most, there's two others. Predatory was um, firearms guy, and he was always looking for vulnerable girls and women that he'd then be their best friend and then either have sex with or the rape allegation wasn't upheld in court but I think that's because the jury at that time didn't want to believe police officers raped but he definitely raped one of those women um, and he would go looking for them and you know look at their details on the computer and go back real predatory behavior it's interesting because you talk now in obviously in the UK about Wayne Cousins and just last week, there's another PC. I was charged. about to say that. Uh, yeah. got away with for years. Yeah, exactly. And, and, in fact, and you know the sad part about that? Sorry to interrupt. The sad part about that is they knew early on he was doing this stuff. They had complaints about him. And yet this guy was allowed to go. You know, at some point you go, yeah, there's this bond of blue brothers and sisters. But at some point you go, but the job overrides my personal uh, affiliation with you, whatever, because at some point I got to protect the next woman from you or the next person from you. And when I saw that, it's like, I'll tell you who else they ought to send to prison are the sons of bitches who let this guy stay on the street and didn't yank him off at a minimum, put him on a desk job, put him, you know, run him out of the damn service. But to let this guy go in, how many victims did he have? Dozens? Yeah. And it's it's interesting, really, because having investigated those offenses, or, you know, with, with a number of officers, not just the one who went to court, but the colleagues, they'll say, oh, yeah, he's a bit of a player, but no, I don't think he did that, or I don't want to believe that he actually did that or overstepped that line. And it's sort of like, yeah, he's just one of the lads, or he's just a ladies' man, the ladies love him. And the mindset behind it and the culture is very, very difficult to change and it will change. I think finally, finally, not just because of Wayne Cousins, but more recently, all the others that are coming out. I think that will be the, 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 you know, the straw that breaks the camel's back, but trying to get the colleagues to admit that he just might be a bad egg was really, really difficult. Well, we just had a case here in the U.S., Steve. Do you remember the one? Uh, did you hear about the one, the FBI agent, the guy that retired, but he was just arrested for helping the Russian oligarch yeah, avoid investigation? Yeah. 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 Yeah, you see? 
What? I mean, crazy, isn't it? Batshit you know crazy. Yeah. And, and as with espionage, as with spying, the way you get to Americans, most Americans, it's money. There's this thing they call the four things, mice, money, ideology, compromise, uh, emotion. You want to get Americans, it, it, all it took was money. This guy got paid $225,000 to help a Russian oligarch. Which in the grand scheme of things, I know it's a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money when you think what's at stake, is it? Well, yeah, because he's going to lose his pension. He's going to yep. be convicted of a felony. He's going to go his to prison. Home, his family. Yeah. And just the, just the impact. But anyway, so. Okay. So, yeah. So, that's what, so I did the corruption, anti-corruption for a couple of years and I really enjoyed it. And then I went to the cold case team and cold cases because they're unsolved cases. Um, it's brilliant. Okay, now, the raison d'etre, the reason we are here today, as the French would say. By the way, you like my outrageous French accent? No. <laughs> no. Très bon, très bon. So, the reason we are here today, let's talk about the case, because that, that was the book, that was the podcast. By the way, like I said, we'll put it on our It's to Hunt a Killer. Uh, and the podcast name again, Julie? Catching Melanie's Killer. So you guys can find that on all the podcast platforms and everything. So to get involved with the case, you had to have, I mean, you're in investigations, you're a detective sergeant at this time, right? Yeah. So how do how does it come about now that you are assigned? And it's called Operation Rhodium. So before we even get into that, I want to ask you real quick, I, I noticed a lot of the other cases too, they were operation names. What is it about, was it just because it was an easier way to refer to it? Was that standard nomenclature? Because... Every now and then, if you got big cases here, they'll come up with an operation name. But like when I was doing a homicide, we just called it, you know, it's the, um, you know, the Becker homicide or the Gonzalez homicide. You know, what was the theory behind having an operational name? So we always had operational names for our homicides since, you know, time and eternity. And um, I think it was just so that you could distinguish between them. So you might be working on a number at any one time. I think it was for financing and budget as well at the beginning. So the admin staff would just find it easier to have that. And um, before it was evolved into a central murder team, the districts that the operations were run under, so if it was C district, then the name began with a C. So everybody knew it's a homicide on C district. And if it's D district, it began with a D. So, yeah, there was a lot of that as well. So it's just of ease for the whole force to know what was going on where. And Melanie's last name is Rode, R-O-A-D, right? Yeah, that's it, yeah. So do you know where they came up with the name Rhodium from? So the reason it came up with Rhodium was because um, it was it had become a cold case, and um, all the cases that were run out of headquarters began with an R. So that's how it began with an R, and they would have just chosen one either from a list or at random. And so Rhodium was the one. And I suspect that it was a little bit, you know, to link in with Rode so that everyone would remember. And of course, rhodium is a chemical, isn't it? It's a chemical name. But yeah, that's where it came from. Okay. So let's talk about your glide path into this case. How does What's the setup for this now? So I went into the review team and I got there in the September of 2009. 2009 was the what's 25th. What's a review Tell everybody uh, what a review team is. Review it. team. So a cold case team. So you review all the undetected murders and stranger rapes. Um, you help with um, reviewing crimes that are difficult or if the chief officers want a case to be reviewed because it's either been badly investigated or it's being very challenging or they want a fresh pair of eyes, anything like that, you review it. 
and had some great success doing it. You know, gone back, reviewed old cases and found the killers or the rapists or whatever. Sorry, not killers, never murders before this one. Uh, Rapists, um, generally, a lot of success with them. Yeah, because I noticed from the book, I said, because this was the number one cold case in Avon and Somerset. But you you but in that area, you also had a very large string of sex attacks, too, that were going on. Yeah. So when I was um, when I've been working in Bath in the 90s, uh, sorry, I went to Bath in 2000, but in the 1990s in Bath, and in fact, there was a case in Bristol um, at the end of that when I was working in Bristol, there was a, a sex attacker, a rapist. So you remember I talked about early on about all these back lanes at the back of the houses and women would go and park their cars in their garage sort of at the end of the garden up these back lanes of their houses. He'd lie in wait. Goodness knows how he ever chose his victims. But basically, just as they were either in the car about to get out of the car, he always wore a balaclava or baseball cap and dark clothing, produce a knife, uh, would get in the car and basically abduct them, make them drive to another location that was remote, and then he'd rape them and then make them drive back. So um, really especially in a city like Bath, which is quite small and obviously it's very touristy and it's quaint and old English and just this weird attacker kept coming out of nowhere and you never knew when he was going to strike again. That went on for 10 years and that was called Operation Eagle. And the reason it was Eagle because Bath was E district, so it began with an E. So, yeah, so we'd had the string of sex attacks going on and they were never detected. It's the 25th anniversary of Melanie Road. Um, they had a partial DNA profile from the Eagle from the series of rapes and had done mass swabbing. And when they were mass swabbing for that, they'd also, uh, because there was a full DNA profile of the offender uh, from the Melanie Road scene, they were swabbing to see if they could find the killer and had so far been unsuccessful. So it had gone out on television as an appeal. And that's basically where I came in, having done the appeal on TV. Yeah, because I want to, I want to, um, you had the chance, uh, his name was Andy, and he asked you if you wanted to be the deputy on Operation Rhodium, right? Yeah. And your quote from the book is, Andy, I know Operation Rhodium inside out. If you don't appoint me as your deputy, there'll be another murder. And I'll be asking <laughs> to leave MCIT even though I've just arrived. Explain that Explain that statement for me, please. Was that a threat of violence against a superior officer? Yeah, it was, quite frankly. It's a promise, wasn't it? There was no threat. So that was three years later. And uh, so I'd worked on Rhodium for three years, um, getting basically the house in order, started swabbing, doing some familiar work around it. But let's talk about that before. Let's not gloss over that because in the book too, and I can just imagine, you have boxes and crates. Uh, I mean, part of the challenge in this investigation is just locating where all the information is about the case, right? Yeah. And the opening chapter talks about me and Gary. So Gary's a retired detective sergeant who I'd worked with for many years. He was a thief taker. In fact, we'd been in a lot of fights together trying to arrest drug dealers. But that's another story. And uh, so we were there together going to this old warehouse and it was cold and damp. And it had these old style, you know, doors that like slide across like bifold doors that you'd have in a nice place today. But they were not nice. They were sticky and they'd never open and they were wooden. And if you batted them too hard you'd break the glass at the top and oh my god they were such hard work to get him and set off so, the alarm yeah. always did you guys not have the <laughs> did you not have the code to the alarm 
It never worked. I don't know what every it time, was. I reckon, every time you went there, the uniforms were showing up. You set the alarm off again. What the hell's wrong with you? Yeah, the traffic guys. I reckon they did something on purpose just to like make us look stupid. <laughs> I mean, it sounds it sounded like it. a horrible place to be keeping evidence. It was, and it was chaotic. It was, it was just everything was just shoved in all these boxes and bags everywhere. There was no organization for it. It was just papers, exhibits. I mean, there's guns down there, knives down there, clothing, all sorts, everything. There's a couple of freezers in there with like your biological exhibits in. And of course, if the electric went off, then you'd lose all that. So you'd used to have to go and check it. But yeah, yeah, it was carnage. And so, yeah, finding the papers for it at the very beginning was really challenging. How long did that take you to finally assemble the case to where you felt confident you had everything oh, God, to move that, forward? Yeah, that took us months, I reckon, to make sure that we had everything. And even then, we were missing a box of 600 documents. And we also didn't find some exhibits, So, which included, which is really sad, makes me feel sad now just thinking about it. Um, so she had lovely long hair, Melanie, and they'd cut her hair, um, I guess, maybe to keep it for DNA. I don't know why they did that. Something they obviously did in 84 that they'd never do today, thank goodness. Um, and we didn't find that until much, much later on. You know, I'm talking like 2013 or 14. Um, but when we did find it, we gave some locks of the hair, you know, to her brother and sister and mum, because they'd never, ever had that. And it's sad that it took all that time to find it, isn't it, really? So, yeah, it took months. I'm looking at a picture of Melanie. What a beautiful young lady, 17 years old. Yeah. Just a cute smile on her face. Just beginning life. And I had that picture with me. So, I... The picture was on the wall in the instant room, and that picture was in my file, which obviously, you know, later in the book I talk about when I'm arguing the toss with somebody else. But, yeah, really important in any murder, and you guys will know this, it's really important to have a photograph of your victim because you can get a little bit, oh, it's another murder, you know, and forget a little bit about who the person is. So, to me, that was like the number one thing. This is who we're talking about. This is why we're here today, guys. This is why we're at work. And it just keeps everybody focused. back being a bit human. Yeah, it keeps you focused on your mission. Hey, players, that is the end of part one. Part two comes out, as always, on Tuesday. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot more information there, including our book list. Any book written by our guests will be listed there. In the meantime, go check us out also, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. It's where we put a lot more content you won't hear on our regular podcast. We go into a lot more topics, and folks, it is a lot of fun. So go check us out, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow for part two.